Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew, chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the pitch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you hold all things together, and you are Lord of all. So we thank you that you are here with us now, ruling and reigning, holding us together, holding us in your hand. And we pray that you would be with us as we seek to learn from your word, that you would speak to us what is true and lovely and beautiful, that you would sink it deep into our hearts and souls, that it would live there and serve us there all the days of our life. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome, uh, Painador, uh, to what is now the sixth Sunday of Eastertide. Throughout this season of the church calendar, we've been emphasizing new life, as you know, if you've been here. And in particular, we've been emphasizing how it is that we receive new life, how it is that we apprehend new life. We know that Jesus has given us new life. We know that on Easter Sunday, Jesus did something extraordinary, which is to beat death. Jesus conquered the grave. He has given us new life. He has produced new life. He has shown us the way. But how do we apprehend that? How do we drink that in? How do we receive that in fullness? It's an astonishing reality that Jesus gives to us in defeating death. He not only shows us that death in and of itself has no power, but that also all of death's cousins have been rendered powerless. Things like pain and loss and fear. That these things actually have no power to harm us. That's an astonishing reality. That death and pain and loss and fear have no power to truly harm us. How can we know that? How can we live into that? How can that be true? Most of us, in fact, don't know that. The world doesn't know that. And even those of us who believe don't know that. Not fully. We're slowly awakening to it. That's what faith is. It's a dim, slow awakening to the reality that Christ demonstrated. That in fact, death and pain and loss and fear don't have power to harm us. All the rest of us, we spend our lives seeking to avoid those things because we believe they can harm us, because we believe that death can crush us beyond repair, that pain and loss can crush us beyond repair. We are gripped every day, compelled every day to seek to avoid experiencing those things. 
Christ came into the world and lived in an entirely different way because he knew those things could not ultimately harm him. He knew those things could not ultimately crush him. They could not crush him beyond repair. And so he was able to live his life freely, not gripped by the motivation of seeking to avoid death or avoid pain or avoid loss or avoid those things that would make him or any of us afraid, make us shudder or shrink back. Instead, he was able to live his life completely preoccupied with love and to go wherever it was that love would lead him. In the most basic sense, Jesus came into the world and did nothing. In the most basic sense. Of course, he did many things, too many things even to recount, John's Gospel tells us. But unlike us who spend our lives and spend our energy and spend our effort trying to change things, trying to fix things, trying to alter reality in some way, trying to push back what is broken here, Jesus came in and simply let what is broken here befall him. He didn't seek to avoid it in any way. He didn't seek to solve it in any way. He just let it fall on him. It's why Jesus could let his own cousin, John the Baptizer, be beheaded. It's why he could let his own friend, Lazarus, die. Though he had the power to prevent these things. He had the power right in his hands, in his mouth, we know, to prevent these things. Yet he did not. And finally, when pain and death came for him, he didn't resist it. He didn't fight it. He didn't take up the sword to fight it. He didn't use his enormous rhetorical skill to offer a defense for himself or to outwit the Romans or his Jewish accusers in some way. Instead, he let pain and death befall him. Why? Because he knew something that the world doesn't know, which is that death and its cousins cannot harm us. That has always been true, but the world has never known it. You and I don't know it, and so we live our lives as if it were not true. We live our lives as though there is something dreadful that must urgently be stopped and solved, lest we all be crushed beyond repair. Jesus was able to walk through life in the knowledge of a different reality, in the knowledge that death cannot stamp out love. That a life lived in the love of God is impervious to death. Impervious to death and to all of death's cousins. That a life lived in the love of God is a life preserved forever. A life preserved eternally. A life truly that can never be lost That's the reality that Jesus could see. That's the reality that Jesus lived in. It's not as though he was pursuing death over the course of his life or pursuing pain or loss over the course of his life. But when those things came for him, he didn't resist them. He didn't run from them. He didn't try to avoid them. Jesus knew that death is powerless against love. 
So this Easter season, this Easter tide, the question that we are in essence asking is, how do we see into that reality that Jesus lived in? How do we see more into that reality that Jesus lived in, that defined the life and way and being of Jesus? How might that define the life and way and being of all of us? What we're really talking about is the art of receiving. Jesus has given us a new way of being. He's forged a new way of being. He's shown us how to live a life of love in this broken place that cannot be stamped out. A life that cannot be crushed beyond repair. But how do we receive that life? How do we walk in the way of being that he walked in? This great gift that he has given us. This way of being unconcerned with avoiding death or pain and instead being gripped alone by the reality of love. Love for us. Love in us. I was thinking about what is it in me that motivates me most to get things done? What actually causes me to get up in the morning or to accomplish tasks? What actually causes me to try and be somewhere on time, for example? I think for me, it is a fear of what others might think, of the social cost, were I to not accomplish what it is that I'm responsible to accomplish. And so for most of my days, for most of the time that I'm alive, what is driving me, what is compelling me, what is running my life is this sense that there's a great consequence to me letting people down. It's this sense that I want to avoid the drama of letting people down, the drama of relational or social failure, the consequence of people rejecting me or thinking less of me or not liking me in some way. All of us live like that to some degree. We seek to avoid pain, loss, the cousins of death in some way. Perhaps for you it's not needing to be liked as it is for me. Perhaps for you it's fear of financial loss or financial ruin or of being a nobody or of not proving your worth to yourself or to someone else, a parent perhaps, a mentor, someone who you care about. We all are given to this kind of futile living. And Jesus lives in an entirely different way. A way that's unconcerned with avoiding loss. A way that's gripped instead by love. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at some of the means by which we can receive that life of Christ. Some of the ways in which we can see into that reality. We can see the same thing that Jesus saw, that death and its cousins can't crush us. We've looked at things like baptism and confession and community and gathering here for worship and taking together of the Lord's Supper and things like meditation and prayer. All of these are part of the art of receiving the art of apprehending this life of Christ, this very different way of being. This week I want us to look at another means 
for seeing and receiving the life of Christ, and that is fasting. A thrill of joy rose from the congregation. There could hardly be a more dreaded topic for a Sunday morning than the topic of fasting. We could probably think of one if we really tried, but nobody likes fasting. In fact, that's kind of the point. If you like fasting, there is something wrong with you. And you say, no, no, pastor, I have given my life over to a rhythm of intermittent fasting, and it's great, it's fantastic, I love it. To which I say, touche, that's a good point, you got me there. Um, But that's not the kind of fasting that I'm talking about here. Because the rhythm of intermittent fasting, as it's normally lived out, is not meant to be attended by regular, gross hunger pangs. If you're doing intermittent fasting properly, you actually avoid the discomfort of hunger pangs. And the true Christian fasting, the spiritual fasting, fasting historically speaking, that I'm wanting to speak on today, is the notion of denying yourself food or drink or some other comfort precisely for the sake of experiencing discomfort. Fasting means giving up some comfort and putting yourself intentionally, willfully, into a place of tremendous discomfort. Fasting is a spiritual practice that has a long history in religious traditions of wide and varying stripe. Really, all of the great world religions include this practice of fasting. And that is because all the great religious thinkers and teachers throughout the world and throughout all time have recognized that fullness, that is to say, always having every comfort well served, can be a great inhibitor to seeing beyond the veil of material reality. That always having every comfort satisfied can prevent you from seeing realities that are beyond the material world. Beyond what the natural eye can see. It's sort of like if you were to fill up your entire Netflix queue with binge-worthy television dramas. Then you might have a very hard time remembering that there's actually some pretty great documentaries on there. You know? I know that we all aspire to watch those documentaries. We all pretend as though we would really like those documentaries. But all of the data indicates that none of you watch those documentaries. Right? When we are filled up with a certain form of reality, there's very little opportunity, very little occasion, very little appetite for any other kind of reality. And so fasting recognizes that. That when we're filled up with the comforts of food and drink, when we're filled up with things that attend to every comfort in our lives, we have very little attunement, very little opportunity to see anything beyond those comforts. The author and Christian counseling guru Dan Allender says, Fasting is the bulimic act of ridding ourselves of our fullness to attune our senses to the mysteries that swirl in 
and around us. It's the bulimic act of ridding ourselves of our fullness. It's setting fullness down so that we can start to notice other mysterious realities, more mysterious realities than we might typically notice. It's turning off one way of eating or giving up one way of eating so that we can begin to discover another way of eating, another way of being comforted, another way of being full. Now, when Jesus came into the world, he acknowledged the value of fasting. He himself fasted up to 40 days at one point in particular, most famously, and he taught on fasting. He taught repeatedly, actually, on fasting and how it is that we might engage in that spiritual practice. But it was not something that he practiced regularly with his disciples. And this struck other religious practitioners of his time as odd. Why is it that this religious teacher, this rabbi, is not leading his disciples into this rhythm of fasting as one might expect, as every other religious teacher, every other rabbi in his time or any time was wont to do? And this was odd enough such that at one point the followers of John the Baptizer actually asked Jesus about it. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And as was his practice, Jesus answered the question with a question, of course. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay, this is the kind of talk that wound up getting Jesus killed, actually. Okay, um, you see what it is that he is saying here. He's acknowledging the validity of fasting as a means for communing with the divine. But he says, why would those who long to commune with the divine fast when I'm here? All right, this is an audacious claim about his own divinity, an audacious claim to divinity for himself. Jesus is in effect saying, what is the reason for fasting when the reason for fasting is here? He's flipping over years, centuries of the spiritual practice of Fasting For the purposes of our understanding what fasting is, this is essential to hear these words of Jesus. He's acknowledging that fasting is a valid spiritual practice, but not an end unto itself. He's flipping over the idea that fasting has some intrinsic, inherent value or worth in it. He's saying that, in fact, it does not. He says fasting only matters in as much as it leads you to me. Jesus says fasting is of only value, of all its only worth is when it leads you into communion with me, such that when I am with you, there is no need to fast. When I'm with you in the material presence, there is no need to engage in this spiritual practice. Jesus says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. 
Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Jesus says the way that you have engaged in fasting to this point won't work anymore. The way that you have engaged in spirituality to this point won't work anymore. If you try to add me into your religious life as usual, it will all fall apart. If you try to sew me into your old spirituality, I'll rip your religion to shreds. If you try to pour me into your old spirituality, I will render that old religious way worthless. It will burst, he says. I am a different kind of wine than you have ever had before. I won't fit into the ways that you have done things. Let me ask you this, all of you who are here. Why are you here? I'd like to start with the Christians, with those of you who would identify as a Christian. Why are you here? Why do you engage in a practice of faith that would lead you to come into worship on a weekly basis? What's the primary reason why you made it to church this morning? Is it to meet other people who think like you? Perhaps an avenue into an easier kind of friendship, a more like-minded kind of friendship? Is it out of some sense of duty or obligation for you to be a good Christian? Maybe it's just habituated. You've done it for so long that you would be somewhat lost if you didn't have this ritual. Jesus would rattle us if those are our reasons. Jesus would rattle us out of that and say, I won't fit into your religion as usual. I won't fit into those reasons for religious practice for religious faith. If your Christianity is comfortable, if it's socially convenient, if it's mere habituation, something that you've always done, Jesus says, I came to tear that to pieces. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, but don't let anyone of us talk you into the value of religious practices. Don't let any one of us talk you into the health benefits of being spiritual. There's probably a yoga class down the street in both directions, in all four directions, <laughs> that could do a much better job of offering that to you than we can. But we're a Christian church. That means we have only one thing to offer and that's Jesus. It's the very life of Jesus. It's the very way of Jesus. An entirely new way of being human. That's all we have here. If we lose that, we have nothing. It's not a religious system or a spiritual practice. It's a person. So everything that we do as Christians... It has one single purpose.
purpose. It's to receive Christ. It's to be filled by Christ. It's to manifest Christ. It's to live in Christ. To live up into the fullness of all that He is for us and all that He is with us. That is what true fasting is. It's a departure from the comforts of food or drink for the sake of attuning ourselves to the true comforter, to the presence of Christ, to the reality of Christ with us, God with us, in Christ. As the author and pastor Sam Storm says, Christian fasting is feasting. Christian fasting is not some austerity measure for us to feel holy. It's not about the self-satisfaction of feeling as though we are engaged in some kind of holy practice. Christian fasting is a means by which we feast on the Christ. This past week I was preparing for this sermon, and so I thought it would be prudent for me to fast. And a few hours into that fast... I got a phone call from a pastor friend of mine telling me that a mutual friend of ours, another pastor, had died rather suddenly in a um, dramatic car accident early Friday morning. This pastor friend who had died, a man by the name of Kevin Galloway, uh, had been a mentor to me and to many, many other pastors uh, over the course of his life. Um, And much more important than that, he had just been a dear friend. He was the kind of friend that you could count on. Because he was there when you needed him. Those are the kind of friends you love. He was the first person who called me after um, Pastor Greg died four years ago. I don't even know how he knew. But he was always that way. He was attuned to the needs of the people around him. He was aware of the reality that matters. Not just the one that presents itself so easily and that we default to. He was always seeing beyond that. And so he was a person that people actually loved to be around. Because when you were around him, you felt alive. He could see you. And he was aware of what you needed. And he was full of love for you. My oldest daughter was praying for me a couple days ago regarding this. She was asking me about Kevin. And I was just telling her there was so much love in him. It was like a raw, unfiltered love. He was not a polished person. He was not a polished pastor. Many people, when they discovered his life habits, he lived at a cigar lounge, were scandalized by the way that he lived his life. 
But he never apologized. There was no hypocrisy. There was no pretense. There was just love. There was no attempt to avoid being seen a certain way. No attempt to put on a show for anybody. He was present with the people around him and full of love for them. He used to say a lot. Um, I was sharing this with Acacia. He used to always say, I've got about 30 years left. He would start a lot of conversations that way. I've got about 30 years left. And so he would say, I want to spend that pouring more and more into other leaders in the church. And he would scheme over and over again about how he could give more of his life away, how he could give more of his time away. And we watched him do that, those of us who were mentored by him, those of us who were cared for by him. It's such a small little strange thing. I almost um, don't want to share it because it seems like it maybe injects me in the story more than I should. But the, uh, the day before that I got that phone call I was meeting with another man who has been a dear friend to our church and has counseled many of you and has counseled me has poured into me I was having lunch with him and he said Mark your whole life you've been self-reliant You've never asked for help. You've never needed anyone, but you actually have. He said, you've always needed a mentor. And he said, God is giving you that today. He said, I'm here to mentor you. man much older than me. He said, I'm committed to you. And I'm going to mentor you. And on the next day, a man who had mentored me previously passes. It's just, there's so much to try and put together when someone dies. So much that God is doing leading up to it and after it. There's such holy ground to walk on. It feels dangerous to say anything too definitively. But just to notice little kindnesses, little provisions here and there. Kevin, the night before he died, was at that cigar lounge where else? And I heard from another friend who was there with him that on a Thursday night, no less, their whole crew showed up, which is extraordinarily unusual. Typically on a Thursday night, it'd be one or two of them. And they would all be there together on Friday nights. But everyone was there on Thursday, laughing and enjoying each other. Kevin made that cigar lounge come alive the times that I got to go there and sit with him and his crew, all the other folks there, not believers, but they were attracted to Kevin in a powerful way because he saw them and he loved them and he cared for them. And he wound up coaching many of them in their professional capacities. The prophet Isaiah, he writes of people fasting falsely. People who ask, 
Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And he says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasures and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Isaiah says there is a kind of spirituality that is for show. There's a kind of spirituality that's about proving to yourself or to others your own holiness, making others see that you are decent and upstanding. And he says that God is nowhere near such folly. The kind of spirituality, the kind of fasting that God dwells in is the kind that sets free the oppressed and the kind that cares for the poor. It's the kind that pours itself out in love. The kind that's filled up with the very love of Christ that manifests Christ to the world around it. That was my friend Kevin. Just like Jesus, he never seemed to run out of energy to love people. That's like a superpower to me. There's a point in the Gospel of John when Jesus has been ministering for many hours and the disciples tell him he has to stop and eat something. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. (sighs) And then he goes on to explain that what he's talking about is doing the will of God. Living in the life of love. Pouring himself out. That's true nourishment. There is true eating and feasting when we live into the love of Christ. My friend knew that feast and his life was nourished by it. And Jesus invites us all to that table. When we eat there, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have manifested your Christ among us, that we don't have to guess or wonder who the Christ is because we see him in Jesus. We thank you that the life that Jesus lived is a life for us. And we ask that by your spirit you would help us 
to receive the fullness of that life, to step into that finished work, to walk in that way of love. We pray that you would nourish us with food that the rest of the world doesn't know about. That you would give us energy for love, energy to pour ourselves out. Teach us your ways by your Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.